Hi, this is David Flower, Senior Pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S., and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast, and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the Giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. God is good. All the time, God is good. Amen. Just since his presence this morning. Last Sunday, I shared the first part of a two-part message on God's mercy and grace. Uh, That first message was called Mercy Triumphs Over Judgment. And we looked at how God has been merciful to us and how God calls us to be merciful to others. And so this morning we're going to look at grace, a message I've entitled Grace Empowers the Weak and Humble. And if you think about it, as Pastor Melissa said earlier in the service, this, these messages are really all about the portrait, our portrait of God, right? And we say here at Grantham that we are a church who wants to lead others to the God who looks like Jesus, to taste His goodness. And I invite us to do that today in this message on how grace empowers the weak and the humble. Here's how I've defined mercy and grace. We said mercy is about forgiveness and pardon, not getting the punishment that we deserve. And grace is about blessing and empowerment, getting good things we don't deserve. Can you recall a time when you've experienced God's mercy and grace in an unforgettable way? Why don't you think about that for just a moment? Think of a time when you've experienced God's grace in an unforgettable way way. When I think about that for myself, I, I first think about how I grew up in a Christian home, and when I became a teenager, uh, my faith became more challenging. Right? As I tried to live out what I was learning in my home and learning in my church, and tried to follow Jesus. And as I got older, I know there were a variety of reasons why, but one of the reasons why I began to have a difficult time on top of hormones, on top of of changing and becoming an adolescent, was I didn't see how the message that I heard in church um, was, was lived out and truly believed, fleshed out in the lives of those closest to me. There seemed to be a disconnect between the God of love that was being preached and the God of love that was experienced, or the God that was experienced in, in, in um, the lives of, of family members and friends and pastors and so forth. And so when I became 16 years old, I got my driver's license and started to hang out with all those people that my parents told me not to. And before you know it, I'm into sex, drugs, and rock and roll. 
and running hard and fast away from the God that I had brought up, been brought up to worship and to love. But by God's mercy and grace, God showed me through those experiences, even in the darkest of moments, that he was there and that he was much better than the God that I had experienced. He was inviting me to know him for who he truly was in Christ. And you could actually say my whole life as a Christian has been that journey. I was meeting with a pastor not long ago who said, what's God been teaching you lately? And I said, that's it. This is, this is where I'm at. I'm learning that God really looks like Jesus. You know, in a lot of ways, my story was kind of a prodigal son story. You think, ever think about that most famous parable that Jesus told? You know, the son came home not so much because of the wonderful character of the father, but because he was desperate, <laughs> because he had no other place to go. And maybe that's you. And, and maybe some people come to God that way, and that's fine. God just wants us home. Another moment of mercy and grace for me, of course, um, in my lowest, I found the Lord in a very surprising way, full of mercy and grace. And as I eventually knelt down beside my bed and confessed my sin and gave my heart back over to the Lord and said, I'm going to follow you no matter what. The next moment of mercy and grace for me was in meeting my wife, Lana. Especially after the ways that I had lived for a few years. I mean, I, I thought, especially with what I had been taught, uh, especially when it comes to the ideas of purity, that uh, I was damaged goods, right? And that I had forfeited all that, that God could do for me and wanted for my life. But that simply wasn't true. And in that, I found God's mercy and grace. I actually went to college and I'm sure Messiah has this saying, the college I went to in East Texas had this saying, where you uh, get a ring by spring, you get your money back, right? I mean, people were going to a Christian college to find a soulmate. <laughs> and uh, I, I caught onto that pretty quickly and was sort of detested and, and uh, thrown off by the whole idea just because of my journey up to that point. I was just sold out for the Lord. I wanted nothing but Jesus. And so when I met my wife in the second semester, I didn't know she was my wife, but when I, when I met Lana, I sort of resisted it. But what was funny is I kept running into her in various places off campus. I thought God was testing me. <laughs> and uh, so I eventually ran into her at the Waffle House, right, of all places. I ran into her Bible studies, ran into her chapel on campus, but ran into her waffle, at Waffle House. And um, after that, I gave her a call and, and found that God was at work in that. And I, I want to say that if it wasn't for my wife, I would not be the man I am. And through that, I experience God's mercy and grace every day. Lana will tell you that through most of our wedding, I cried. Thankfully, it was really dark in the room, so most people couldn't see that, except for when I kept reaching over to grab the Kleenex from her. Um, but I tell you what was on my mind through our whole ceremony was how good God was that God would give me my wife as a sign of mercy and grace. 
Well, I share those things, and I could share more, but just as an example of how God has worked in my life, how has God been working in your life? What are some of those moments that are just so powerful and impactful? You can say, God is good because God has, has shed his grace on me in these ways. I want you to think about that through this message today and talk about it over lunch today or talk about it with your small group. It's good for us to share those stories and, and to be reminded of the goodness of God. This is the God that we serve, a God of mercy and grace. And we see this and can know this about God through the scriptures and ultimately through the person of Christ. So if you would turn with me to the Gospel of John this morning. This won't be on the screen, so take a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, look at the Pew Bible uh, in front of you and turn to gospel, the Gospel of John chapter 1. Real quickly, I want to go through those first 18 verses. They're verses that most of us are pretty familiar with, but they're very powerful. So I invite you to open up your hearts as we look at that together. The Lord is calling. John chapter 1, begin verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke of when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The word grace is found only four times in the Gospels. And all of them are here in John's prologue. Jesus 
never used the word grace. But folks, don't miss what John wants us to see. This beloved disciple who, according to his gospel and his epistle, understood something about the love of God that the other apostles didn't. And he understood something about the grace of God that the other apostles didn't. Because Jesus in his life, as you will see through the Gospel of John, if you continue to read, is the embodiment of grace. Jesus was the grace of God in flesh and walking in sandals. His ministry, think about it, his message, including his stories and his parables and miracles were all expressions of grace. So as you keep reading in John's gospel, you quickly come to that first miracle in Cana when Jesus turns water into wine. Now we gather from that story that Jesus wasn't quite ready to start his ministry, but mom comes to him and you can't turn mom away. Mom says, our family members are about to be shamed and embarrassed because they have run out of wine and I want you to help. (laughs) And Jesus pours out his grace on this wedding party and all of their guests. And what does he do? He gives them more wine to enjoy themselves. This is the God of grace. And then you can keep reading and we come to the woman at the well. This woman who had been married five times. This woman who comes to the well at a time when others didn't go to the well just so that she didn't have to be seen and didn't have to mix and mingle with others because she was a bit of an outcast. And yet Jesus invites her to be a part of eternal life in him. To drink the the, the living water, Jesus says, as he pours out his grace upon her. And then the healing of the royal official son and the healing of the lame man at the pool of Bethesda, the feeding of the 5,000 or the pardoning of the woman who was caught in adultery. Or maybe we should call it the men who were caught in hypocrisy. Would you turn to John chapter 8? Still in John's gospel, go to chapter 8. Beginning with verse 53, let's look at this familiar story and what it tells us about the mercy and the grace of God. John chapter 8, verse 53, Then all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. Now, it does make you stop and ask the question, how did that happen? (laughs) How did they catch her in the act? You quickly see that they are purposely trying to test Jesus. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. They already believe that Jesus doesn't abide by the law. He doesn't enforce the law. That would make him not a good Jew, not a law 
abider. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And we don't know what that was, but look what happens. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. What was he doing? Writing their sins? Some people suspect this. You can, just, you can see this mob sort of lean over, looking at the ground, and slowly begin to drop their stones and walk away. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left. With the woman still standing there, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Translation says, Where are your accusers? He says, Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, sir. And Jesus said, Then neither do I condemn you. And Jesus declared, Now go and leave your life of sin. Folks, look at this. Jesus does something scandalous for a rabbi in the first century. He sets aside the law of Moses with its demands for retributive justice and punishment, and he extends mercy and grace to someone who is clearly guilty. And of course, this is most upsetting to the temple leaders and the religious establishment of the day. This sort of grace is scandalous. Now, last Sunday, I mentioned how Jesus challenged the law and, and this judgment mindset on multiple occasions. A classic example is when Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 and 39. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Now, the word resist here is one that means sort of this tit for tat, right? In, in like kind. Jesus said, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And there's a lot to be said about that, but that's for another sermon. But what I want you to notice here is what is often said about this passage is that Jesus is not challenging the law. He's challenging people's interpretations or the tradition of interpretation of the law. And while that might be true in some cases, that's not what Jesus is doing here. If you turn to Leviticus chapter 24, verse 19 and 20, this is what the law says. The law says anyone who injures their neighbor is to be injured in the same manner. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And then the law is affirmed again for that second generation, the generation that's going to go in and receive the land, Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 21, it says the same thing. Eye for eye and tooth for tooth. So notice what Jesus is doing. There's no way around it. The law of Moses Jesus would say, and the Apostle Paul would say, had a purpose for a time to live that way. In fact, it was very progressive in the day. You know, if you go back far enough in Genesis, you can read stories of where 
where the tribe of God's people, remember this story where uh, the, the brothers, their sisters taken advantage of by a neighboring tribe? Do you remember that? Rapes her and then wants to take her as his wife? What do the brothers do? They say, well, as long as you'll agree to be circumcised and to accept our religion, then you can have her. And so they do that, and while they're in pain over the next few days, God's people go and slaughter them all. So you can see how progressive it would be at the time to say, none of that in this limiting that happens. No, rather eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But then Jesus comes along and takes it further and says, none of that. You have heard that it was said, but now I say to you. Look at what Jesus is doing. Now in Christ, we're being given a new life for a new law. That's what he meant when he said he'd not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. It's the way of restorative justice, the way of reconciliation, the true way to get to healing, renewal, and peace. It's the way of mercy and grace. And it's not surprising that this way was immediately misunderstood. It's still misunderstood, isn't it? it, it we, we scoff at it. We, we have a hard time believing in the power of this way. And so it was condemned by the religious leaders, and even the the first apostles had a hard time with it. You'll recall when the apostle Paul began preaching the gospel of grace to the Gentiles. How was that received? You remember the Jerusalem church and those that we would call the Judaizers who scoffed at this gospel of grace, who wanted others to become Jewish to embrace their ethnic customs and to follow the law, they balked at this. They thought Paul was a heretic. Now, why would they think Paul was a heretic? Because they said, you're using this this idea of grace to give people a license to sin, just to go on living and doing what they're doing. So look at how Paul responds in Romans 6, verse 1 through 4. He says, What shall we say then? Because people were saying this. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? It's what some people are telling me, that I'm just giving out a license to sin. And look at this strong response by Paul in verse 2. Paul says, by no means. Now, my Greek professor told me that's about as close as Paul gets to swearing. Heck no. Paul saying, that's not how it works, this grace of God. You know, if we're honest, some of us, we feel that way. If I I extend mercy and grace to someone, they may not change. Or if I extend mercy and grace to someone, they may take advantage of the situation. If I extend mercy and grace to someone, well, they may just keep on living how they're living. But look at what Paul says. This is not what grace is about. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Grace doesn't leave us unaffected, Paul is saying. Grace impacts us, true grace. He said, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus, now he he wants to evoke in their imagination the time they were baptized. Can you remember when you were baptized? Think about those baptismal waters. 
Paul wants you to remember the symbolism and the moment in the experience of this that when you went under the water, you are symbolizing an inward reality, an outward symbol of an inward reality. I have died to Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So he says in verse 4, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. This is what the Anabaptist criticized some of the magisterial reformers for, who emphasized, rightfully so, emphasized grace, but the Anabaptists saw something else was going on, at least with some of them, that they rested in grace. This is what they said, you rest in grace, we walk in resurrection life. We take serious the teachings of Jesus. We take serious holiness. So yes to grace, but also yes to holiness. Paul is saying that grace isn't a license to sin or permission to be lackadaisical about holiness. Rather, grace is about enabling and empowering us to live freely. You see, mercy, as I said, opens the cell door. We said that last week. It opens the cell door. It wipes our slate clean. It releases us from guilt and shame. And grace empowers us to leave that cell. This is good news. To follow Christ, not out of duty, not out of obligation, not out of guilt and shame, but out of joy. To release us from the burden of sin, of guilt and shame. This is what new life in Christ is all about. Amen. And Paul says in the very next chapter, yeah, we'll continue to sin. We'll continue to struggle with it. But our identity has changed. Our attitude towards sin has changed. And that sin should no longer define us. Are we sinners? Right, because that seems to denote a certain identity. Yes and no. Is that surprising? We live in a kingdom that's already a not yet. We have an identity that is sinner but is also what? Saint. You know, I can think of no worse of people than the church of Corinth. Have you ever read both of those epistles and seen what those folks went through? I always laughed. I grew up in rural East Texas and I would drive down the road and I would see a Corinth Baptist church. And you think I'm going to visit that place? Yet for all of their faults, Paul intentionally calls them in his letters saints. He wants them to know their true identity so they'll rise up above all of that mess that they're living in and stop acting like pagans and start acting like Christians. So, we're called to be saints, to work out our salvation, Paul would say, elsewhere, and become like Christ. So what are you going to do with the grace that God has given you? We have to be careful, you see, not to embrace a cheap or powerless grace for ourselves and for the church. And some of you may know that's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian and pastor said. Look what he said in his book, Discipleship. He said, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without repentance. Baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace 
without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. And if you really want to put this quote in its context, Bonhoeffer wrote this in a day when the church was starting to follow after totalitarians, starting to look like a church that emulated the world, that hungered for power. Bonhoeffer said this as he watched the German church start to cozy up to Hitler. Now, when you think about that in its context and think about the fire that is lit here under Bonhoeffer, if we're going to take our baptism seriously, and maybe this too was a criticism of the, of the reformers, of which the tradition he was a part of, to say grace should empower us to take serious the teachings of Jesus and to follow him in holiness to emulate the life of Christ. Cheap grace, Bonhoeffer would say, is not real grace. You see, real grace, God's grace, is the costly grace of Christ on the cross. The grace that empowers us to confess, to repent, and to live as disciples of Jesus, and then extend that kind of mercy and grace to others. So let's think about that this morning. And now let's go back to Paul and his gospel of grace. One of the things that was common for speakers, philosophers, even preachers of the day to do to undergird and support their legitimacy and their validity and their authority was to boast. You know, if we heard somebody doing that today, we might be turned off by that. At least some people would. We have evidence recently that's not always the case, but for most of us, we'd be like, isn't that person egotistical? But that was almost expected for you to brag, to, to boast about your resume and your experiences and all the things that you've accomplished. But Paul says to the church of Corinth, I'm not going to do that in order to compete against those who are preaching to you another gospel and leading you astray. Instead, just before this passage here in chapter 12, Paul says, I'll boast, but I'm going to boast in my weaknesses. And Paul gives a, a pretty hearty list of all of the ways he suffered. I've been stoned many times. I've been shipwrecked. I've been snake bitten. I've been run out of town. All of these things have happened to me. So he says in verse 6 of chapter 12, 2 Corinthians, even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I'd be speaking the truth. <laughs> Now, you may say, well, isn't he quite arrogant? 